facts. You have to really nail down what's actually going on. And that's often quite difficult because there's often institutions or governments or corporations, whatever, trying to prevent you from getting that information. So in order to do good, you have to get yourself through a whole lot of misinformation. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. When you hear the words Timor-Leste or West Papua, what do you think? Right now in West Papua, the long struggle for independence from Indonesian rule has reignited, triggering a brutal crackdown that involves chemical weapons, horrific killings and mass displacement. All of this is occurring on Australia's doorstep, yet we barely hear or see a thing about it in the news. Rewind just over 20 years ago to Timor-Leste, when a similar situation was unfolding. A struggle for independence, accompanied by a brutal crackdown by Indonesian authorities. Again, despite this occurring less than 700 kilometres from Australia's coastline, we heard very little. What little we do hear comes from journalists on the ground. People who are risking their own lives to ensure the stories of these atrocities make it out. I've always been fascinated by journalists working in conflict zones. The trauma of witnessing war combined with the burden of responsibility for documenting the horrors of war is a heavy load to carry. I invited four-time Walkley Award-nominated investigative reporter and author John Martinkus onto the podcast to talk us through what's happening in West Papua. John is the author of the book, A Dirty Little War, covering Timor-Leste's struggle for independence written after John's experience of being the only foreign journalist in the country throughout this period. John has also recently released another book, The Road, which covers the current uprising in West Papua. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, John. How are you? I'm great, thanks. It's lovely to have you here. John, I want to ask you something I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Look, I think in my role as a journalist and as a writer, I kind of feel, and I have felt over the years in my work, that it is important to choose areas to focus on where you see things happening that are not being reported, where people are being misrepresented. And I think that's what I can do. I can look at things that other people aren't looking at or examine issues that are being glossed over in other sections of the media, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Is that something you always kind of strived for? Is it something that just, you just kind of happen to fall into? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, consciously. I mean, I did might say with Timor, for example, you know, I consciously made an effort to go up there and report it when nobody else was because I thought it was very important and I thought that it was a story that was being ignored or represented in the Australian media for political reasons. Similarly now with West Papua, which is one of the reasons why I, why I wrote this latest book. Yeah, you do make a conscious decision to cover these things. And in a way, that's sort of an expression of your desire to do good. But also too, bear in mind, and this is something that as a journalist, you have to be very, very careful about is you have to focus on facts. You have to really nail down what's actually going on. And that's often quite difficult because there's often institutions or governments or corporations, whatever, trying to prevent you from getting that information. So in order to do good, you have to basically get yourself through a whole 
lot of misinformation. You've spent your career in places that most of us will never go and exposing stories that in many cases are pretty horrific and I imagine pretty traumatising to witness and hear about. What drives you to do this work in particular, to go to the hardest places and tell the hardest stories? I could give a few answers to that, but I'll give you an example. Like back in the 90s, there was a lot of people writing about Timor. It was an issue in the mainstream press, but very few journalists were actually going there and really finding out what was going on. And that was because there were restrictions on many of the mainstream journalists. In that instance, I was in a position where I was able, because of the fact that um, I was relatively unknown, I was able to go there and gather information and report um, events that other journalists probably weren't allowed to because they were officially accredited. So in that instance, what drove me was the fact that here was a story that I could cover, although it was very intimidating in a way, but I felt obliged to do that because no one else was doing it. And, you know, I basically saw the gap there and thought, well, someone's got to report this, someone's got to do this. And I do remember, like, you know, going up there with a fellow journalist in, like, what would have been 95, and we were sitting there, and we're very heavily monitored. We're followed by the Indonesian military intelligence in quite intimidating way, you know, and um, continually ask you what you're doing there. And I remember laughing with this particular guy, Dan. I wonder what would happen if you just stay here and you didn't go anywhere. I wonder what they'd do. Would they actually kill you or would they just be really confused? So in the end, that's what I did in 98. I just went there and just stayed there. And because of that, I was able to like win the trust of the local people as well because they knew that I wasn't going to run away and get access to a lot of information about what was going on, um, which was very important because it was quite a crucial time and they were just about to get the UN to come in and that would change everything. I didn't actively go up there to do good. I went up there to work as a journalist to report a story, but it just so happened that 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 story ended very well for the people of East Timor. But there was a lot of bad things happened before that happened. Yeah. So many years ago, I read the book that you wrote about that time called A Dirty Little War. And that book exposes the brutality of the suppression of the independence movement there. Reading that book exposed me and many others to the horrors committed by Indonesia in that time leading up to it that I didn't know about. I was 20 at the time and the realisation that this was happening right on Australia's doorstep and I hadn't heard about it was pretty shocking. And as you said, you were the only foreign journalist there during the time. What was that pressure like in terms of being the only one to be witnessing what was going on and then also having the burden of being one of the only people that was able to get news out as well? It was quite heavy, actually, because I stayed in the same room for almost a year at the Turismo Hotel, room number five. I was always there. And um, for a lot of the Timorese student activists, when something happened, like someone got arrested or someone got killed or someone got beaten or someone got shot or whatever, nine times out of ten, you know, someone will turn up in my room and say, come on, come on, we've got to go now, we've got to go now. This is going on, this is going on. And they dragged me out and, you know, I'd interview the people involved and, and try and get a story up about it. And this was the really frustrating thing was because, especially earlier on, I'd get the story, 
And then I'd try to sell it, basically, try to get a run in the City Morning Herald or the New Zealand Herald or wherever. It was very, very frustrating for me because I'd have these stories and there'd just be zero or no interest in the Australian media about this continual violence. And it wasn't until later on when the international community started getting involved that overnight it went from being very much an ignored backwater story where, I'll give an example, like one afternoon I was just sitting there and um, a student who worked for me as a translator comes running into the hotel, says, oh, there's violence going on in Bukora, which is out on the outskirts of Dili. So we jumped in the cab, we went out there, and all of a sudden all this shooting starts, and I'm sitting there and a guy's shot in front of me. I was totally in shock. You know, this was the first time I'd ever seen a man shot in my life, and I was hiding in this ditch. And we eventually got out of there, and I got back to the hotel, and I remember calling up the Seymour Herald, and they were totally not interested. And I remember that feeling of incredible frustration and anger. Here, people are getting shot in the street, and it's not a news story. I mean, if that happened in Sydney, it'd be like front page for five days, you know, that unequivalence of human life, I suppose. That really did motivate me to continue reporting. Instead of making me think I'm wasting my time and risking my life for nothing up here, it actually had the opposite effect, like, well, I'm going to really find out what's going on and force you to report it. And that is sort of what happened. But there was also a big change in the international mood once the UN became involved. You left Timor and ventured off onto a different path and you were reporting from Afghanistan and Iraq during the conflict there. When I was researching your career and your life, I found out that you were kidnapped in Baghdad by Sunni insurgents. What happened and what were you thinking in those moments? That was my third trip to Iraq that year. And I'd been there for like two months at the start of the year doing research for a book. And then I'd gone back for SBS Dateline in around June, July and made a few films. And then I went back in um, September, October for SBS. Baghdad was going from a place where you could work as a civilian and progressively throughout that year, it got worse and worse and worse and worse and the insurgency got stronger and stronger and stronger. They started doing the high-profile kidnappings where they would kidnap foreigners, they would film them and in some cases execute them on camera. This was all going on in the background, being on the way back to Baghdad at that time and stopping in Bangkok and all places and visiting a friend, stopped there for like one night on the way through. And we went out to a bar, an Irish bar, and it was quite eerie actually because at the time you had this um, particular British contractor called Kenneth Bigley who was being um, horribly, horribly tortured by the Iraqi insurgents. They had him in a cage and they were filming it. The news networks were running those clips. And I look up at the bar and it's a picture of Ken Bigley signed by him. And just so happened that turned out to be his local bar. And so these were quite high-profile cases. Like, these were on television all the time. Everybody was very, very conscious of what was going on and the consequences of what would happen if you were kidnapped. In a way, the shock value of that tactic was only just becoming apparent. So when I did arrive in Baghdad, like, probably a day and a half later, that 
reality was very uppermost in your mind. And and we would openly, like journalists and myself, and you know, we'd sit there, we'd have dinner, we'd talk about what we'd do if we were kidnapped. Some journalists started carrying weapons. I opposed that myself, and I'm glad I did because I think if I had it, I probably would have ended up being killed. Yeah, it was a very, very, very dangerous time in that we were still trying to work outside of the military system, but it was becoming very, very dangerous. And unfortunately, I was caught. How long did they hold you for? It was just over 24 hours. I was pretty lucky, actually. to go into the reasons why I was released, but to be honest, I 100% don't know why. I know that they looked up my work. They contacted people I'd interviewed. I had a very, very smart and well-connected translator working with me who was able to provide lots of details to the insurgents who took us, details about who we'd dealt with. And I think he was sort of playing a bit of a game in that he was like, well, we've been to interview this guy. He's probably senior to you. Something happens to us. You may get in trouble. And so basically they agreed to release us. But it was almost like we were the last ones to know that. It wasn't until we were actually released that we knew that it was real. And even then, we were still very worried that they would take us again or someone else would because the disconnected nature of all the different groups in Baghdad, you could easily be released by one group and picked up by another. Yeah, it was a very, very scary time. John, what's the personal cost of witnessing and experiencing all of this stuff? Yeah, it's quite high. It's quite high. Look, I haven't been to a war zone since 2011. Even now, I still regularly have dreams and things like that. And, of course, you try and, you know, deal with it in all the normal ways, you know. Yeah, you've got to be really mindful of it because um, I've seen it destroy some other friends of mine, colleagues, taking their own lives. It's not a game. No, it's a heavy cost. Did you have a break after Iraq? Not really. (laughs) No, the nature of the work I was doing meant you do a job and you might take a month or so off, then go back. Yeah, Afghanistan was very much like that. I ended up going there about six times in the end. So, I mean, there is a, an element of adrenaline to it, you know, when you're like, okay, well, now I've got to get on the game and get out there and work. And then when you have time off and you don't know what to do with yourself. Yeah, I do think at that time it was really important that that war was covered properly because there weren't many people doing it, really. I mean, I remember being in um, Kabul 2008. I think I was there for New Year's Eve or something. And there really was only about 12 foreign journalists there. And it was quite remarkable, actually, for such a large war, for so few journalists to be there covering it. I thought it was being really undercovered, actually, because at that stage, most of the focus was on Iraq. So. At that time, you had these two massive wars going on, and there was no real solution in sight. You still had, you know, American generals saying, we need more troops, we need more troops, trying to escalate both conflicts. And then you had a lot of quite remiss, you know, military operations going on and civilians being affected, and also a misrepresentation of what was going on to people back home. Yeah, the misrepresentation seems to be a theme running through all of this. Yeah, as a journalist, that's why you go out there and do this. So you've written another book recently called The Road, and it's about the current uprising against Indonesia in West Papua. 
in it, you talk about West Papuans trying to right a historic wrong. And for those listeners that are unfamiliar with the context, could you give us a bit of a brief outline of the history of the colonisation and annexation by Indonesia and the current independence movement? Well, simply put, when Indonesia became independent from the Dutch, West Papua was known as Dutch New Guinea, and it's basically half the island of Papua New Guinea. And that was retained by the Dutch as their last colony, more or less. Their justification for that was that the Papuans were ethnically distinct. They were not part of the Indonesian ethnic nation. And what the Dutch were doing was they were preparing the West Papuans for independence in much the same way as Australia was preparing Papua New Guinea for independence by, you know, setting up a public service, setting up a police force, sort of putting the civil administration in place, that kind of thing. But the Indonesian nationalists, they said, well, it used to be part of the Dutch East Indies, therefore it's part of our country now. They wanted control of it. And one of the reasons why they wanted control of it was because it's, it's extremely mineral rich and has the biggest gold mine in the world. And this was originally opposed by Australia, but Cold War politics intervened in that the Indonesian Communist Party became very strong and that very much um, concerned the Americans and Australia in the region. And so it was decided by the Americans to allow the Indonesians to take over West Papua and the Dutch were more or less overruled by the Americans and pressured to allow Indonesia to incorporate West Papua into Indonesia. The Dutch were there. The Indonesians started invading. The Dutch actually defeated them. But the international community, led by the United States, approved the Indonesian takeover of West Papua. And the UN got involved in about 63 and then handed the territory over to the Indonesians with the promise that they would have a vote on whether West Papuans want to be part of Indonesia or not. And that would happen in several years' time. And, of course, that went through in 1969, which was called the Act of Free Choice. But what the Indonesians argued and the United Nations accepted was that because of the lack of infrastructure and the so-called primitive nature of the people, they would not be allowed to have a one-man-per-vote system. They would have a representative system where a representative from each tribe would vote whether to remain part of Indonesia or not. And that allowed the Indonesians to personally choose 1,026 men from all around the territory, but they were also able to intimidate them and tell them that if they didn't vote yes to Indonesia, they would be hurt or their families would be hurt or something. So it was pretty much a, a referendum at a gunpoint, and that was widely acknowledged at the time. But given the Cold War atmosphere and the fact that the Americans were desperate to keep the Indonesians on side against communism, they allowed that to go through and basically handed them the territory. Yeah, and that's how it happened. Nobody thought to ask the West Papuans what they wanted? No. Well, that option really wasn't presented, um, to be honest. Like the only West Papuans involved in the process were under coercion by the military. And that's something that's been a feature of Indonesian rule in West Papua ever since. 
quite often the West Papuan representatives selected by the Indonesians are the only ones who actually get any kind of publicity or opportunity to speak, but only on the condition they speak in support of Indonesia. From reading the book, it seems that there's been a very strong independence movement ever since, and certainly an escalation recently, which we'll cover in a second. But why is Indonesia holding on so tightly to West Papua? What's in it for them? Gold. Like I said before, the Grasberg mine is the biggest gold mine in the world. Largest taxpayer in Indonesia, largest foreign taxpayer to the Indonesian government. So the Indonesian government makes a lot of money out of it. The Indonesian military makes a lot of money out of guarding it. Of course, the, the company itself makes a lot of money out of it. A lot of politicians who are in charge of that particular province make a lot of money out of it. It's like a corrupting pit. And also, too, there's a lot of other very lucrative businesses there. You've got logging, that kind of thing. I mean, Papi is very much seen as a wilderness to be exploited by the Indonesians. And because of the nature of the local population, in many cases still living a tribal lifestyle, especially up in mountains, their rights have been long since ridden roughshod over. And that's been historical. That's been going since the 60s. Even their rights over the land have not been recognised and that's why this fight's not going away is because the way they see it is they're still being exploited. And what's happening now? Can you kind of bring us up to speed on what's happening and what you've written about in the book over the past few years? Yeah, look, see, what's happening now? We're seeing this pattern, which um, I've seen in quite a few other places as well. The way these conflicts tend to play out, you'll have peaks and troughs. You know, there'll be a generation that is involved in heavy fighting driven into the bush or driven into exile or made to, you know, move from their traditional lands or whatever. And that generation will fight and they'll be jailed, they'll be shot, they'll be imprisoned, they'll be relocated, whatever. And then, of course, 20 years later, you get the next generation coming through and they would have been raised with these stories of this initial conflict and, you know, they'll get to a point where they'll start fighting themselves. And what we're seeing now is basically the um, new generation of young men coming through whose fathers have either fought or been killed or jailed or whatever, and they're going to fight for independence. And the difference is that this generation is now more educated, more able to access modern weapons in a way that probably the generation before them couldn't. The fighting has gone to another level. When I first started going up there, they might have a shotgun or maybe one old M16 and anybody else has just got spears or something. Now, they're all armed to the teeth with really modern weapons of just as high standard as what the Indonesians are using. And this has created a situation where the war is, in a way, reigniting because Papuans are actually standing up and fighting as opposed to running off into the forest. And I imagine that... Indonesians are pushing back even harder. Yeah, they are. They're sending in more troops, using different kinds of weapons. Uh, I talk about the use of chemical weapons. It's been pretty well documented now. Also, and this is something that reflects badly in Australia too, the kind of troops being put in have often received counter-terrorism training from Australians. That's a question I wanted to ask you. Why isn't Australia taking action to present the human rights abuses that are occurring on its doorstep? Well, it's an obvious question. 
And the answer is quite sadly obvious, is that Australia is going out of its way not to in any way offend Indonesia. And if this means that Australia has to sacrifice the lives of those who oppose Indonesian rule, then it appears that moral decision has been made. This has been going on since the 70s. You know, for 24 years we ignored and were the only country in the world that recognised the Indonesian rule over East Timor. Meanwhile, almost a third of the population died. Now, in West Papua, you've got a very, very similar situation where institutions that dominate Australian policy in the region, they've made that decision, they've made that call that this is not something that's to be covered or to be highlighted. And you become very, very cynical very quickly when you're over there and you watch it. Because it's very obvious what's going on. Given Australia's obviously made a choice, that moral choice not to act, is there pressure from other international actors? And is that pressure increasing? There is and there isn't. The issue has got a bit more attention. Uh, But as for any significant international organisation or body or country coming out to actually support like a referendum process, which is what they're calling for, that hasn't really happened. And I think that's partially, in Australia's case anyway, that's very much because it's almost like Indonesia's playing a game where they're like, well, if you lean too heavily on us, we can throw our support behind China. But also it's the fact that there's a very, very long history of human rights abuses in conflicts with it within its own country. There's a very long history of being involved in businesses, of being corrupt, and of course a long history of human rights abuses. So at the moment it's just rolling along and it's very, very underreported. And the Indonesians have done all they can to make sure that it's not reported. Like journalists aren't allowed to go there. If a journalist does manage to get there, they're really heavily monitored and harassed, intimidated, all that kind of thing. You know, there's a whole range of ways in which the Indonesians state and military have tried to um, isolate West Papua and to keep this story untold. And I suppose that if you're looking for um, fault with the Australians, the fault really is in the fact that they've allowed themselves to see nothing. They don't send people there. They don't ask questions. They don't even look for information. It's clearly a choice. John, do you think that West Papua will see independence? Frankly, I do, because I know the depth of emotion and commitment that West Papuans have to an independent country. And eventually that will come through when that happens, is anybody's guess. You know, very much like Timor in a way, what I did say in the mid-90s, I said, oh, this country is going to be independent. And I was like laughed out of the room, being with the people and seeing what's going on on the ground and, and knowing that level of commitment, you know that this is not going to end. This is going to keep going. Yeah, well, I, hope, I hope so. Yeah. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we are thinking? You'd have to say global warming, really. I mean, 20, 30, 40 years' time, when people are living in different circumstances, 
they'll be cursing early generations. They'll be going, what the hell were they thinking? You know, why didn't they make the changes necessary? It was manageable. They could have managed it, but they didn't because of profit. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what will be it. John, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? It would be every single person on the planet deserves a certain level of respect and a certain amount of rights. And irregardless of um, where they're from or what their income is, there should be inalienable rights that are available to everybody. Absolutely. Tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now. I'd have to say Benny Wender. He's doing a remarkable job keeping the West Papua issue alive in the international forum, something that they've lacked over the years. And I think he's emerging as someone who is providing that, providing a touchstone for people who want to um, find out about the issue because it is wrong what's going on in terms of the level of violence carried out against them. And one of the problems has always been with West Papua is the ability of the Indonesians to be able to isolate the province from the rest of the world and conduct their business there without any scrutiny. Yeah. Where's your favourite place on earth? Favourite place on earth? <laughs> a little bar on the, um, on the beach in Dili. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very nice fish. Yeah, yeah, that's a very nice one. <laughs> Perfect. John, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your story with us today. And I know that we touched on lots of different topics, but I'm grateful for your expertise and for you being brave enough to go into these places and share these stories because they absolutely need to be told. Thanks, Luke. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of the Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.